Good morning. It is Sunday, September 24th, 2017. Today's message at Pilgrim Presbyterian is titled, Single-Minded Sufferers, based on Philippians 1. Great comedians have a way of gently shaming in order to shine some greater truth. Consider the awesome Bob Hope singer about how you can tell you're getting old when the candles cost more than the cake. Or legendary Johnny Carson confessing he was so naive as a kid that he used to go behind the barn and do nothing. Or blunt observationalist George Carlin recounting how he once had dinner at a real nice family restaurant. Every table had an argument going. Or the often spot-on Louis C.K. declaring that if you're in an argument with someone older than you, you should listen to them. Because even if they're wrong, their wrongness is rooted in more information than you have. And the irony-laden, deadpan king Stephen Wright has been a favorite of mine since before he first said, Every morning I get up and make instant coffee, and I drink it so that I have energy to make real coffee. I generally believe British comedians have the greatest natural ability to balance gentle shaming and shining truth. Any Monty Python fans listening? Then how about Eddie Izzard? He may not be everybody's cup of tea, but I sure find one particular routine of his to be hysterically spot on, especially when it comes to the Apostle Paul's touching letter to his Christian friends in Philippi. Yes, my brain connected the Apostle Paul and Eddie Izzard, and I'm fine with admitting that. Welcome to my worldview. It's Izzard's routine where he's talking quite honestly about Christian singing. He declares, there's something weird, something phenomenally dreary about Christian singing. And then he gestures with great enthusiasm while saying, the gospel singers are the only ones who go crazy joyous. It's amazing. And it's born of kidnapping, imprisonment, slavery, murder, and all of that. And then Izzard stops gesturing to more seriously declare, but the Church of England, which is mostly Caucasian people, with all the power and money, enough to make Solomon blush, and they're singing, Oh God, our help in ages. Well, you get the picture. <laughs> if you're smiling even the slightest bit right now, then you know he's got quite a revealing point. Sung praise in Jesus Christ as the redeeming, resurrecting light of all sinful darkness in this world, well, it's expressed diver diversely across various cultures. So however you can sing it, sing it. But may it always be singing for the single-minded Easter morning joy in our hearts, even and especially in the midst of suffering. This doesn't mean we gloss over real human suffering with high in the sky, glory bees. But it does mean that our greatest trust and joy is in the enduring goodness and the sin-surpassing greatness of God's love in Jesus. Stay tuned for part two, Fear and Philippi. Now let's take this point straight into Paul's situation at the time he wrote the letter we have before us as the Bible book of Philippians. His words here are born of tender, faithful friendship with a Christian congregation he established in Philippi, then a leading city in the Roman province of Macedonia. 
It was a city whose citizens enjoyed legal protection from torture and legal tolerance for a diverse number of deities and their cults. The religion of most residents seems to have been a mixture of all kinds of religious practices. Not, I might add, unlike many Americans today, who may believe in wearing both a cross as well as a New Age crystal for protection and healing. Paul is speaking from a distance to these friends, these friends he'd made by introducing them to Jesus perhaps a decade before writing the letter we're considering. He was writing from a distant place at the time when he had thoroughly crossed the lines of legal tolerance by the Romans, and thus he had been arrested and imprisoned, execution by the totally tyrannical Emperor Nero was likely imminent. Now what kind of musical score goes best with that awful situation? Ancient praise draped in a dirge? Or gloriously energizing praise born of oppression? Paul offers a jubilant sound but with a sad staccato. At one and the same time, he gloriously offers up gospel praise while cleanly plucking out notes of great grief. Imprisonment was horrific, especially waiting for what was very likely to be his Game of Thrones-style beheading. And so he sings about wanting to die sooner rather than later. And not just to alleviate his suffering, but also so he could fully be with the Lord, which he counted his gain. Yet at some point while working on this honest letter, Paul remembered the bigger, shining truth. He remembered the joy even greater than the personal gain of dying for Christ. He remembered the joy that happens when you move beyond thinking just about yourself. The joy that comes from living for others, which is living for Christ. He then faced the music by calling for single-minded suffering. Whether or not fellow believers are experiencing dire times, they are to be of one mind in Christ by striving side by side together. They were to live towards a a level of faith that counts even suffering as a joy in that it serves the gospel, the very good news of Jesus suffering, dying, and rising again to new life. Come what may, that is always something to live for. One scholar puts it this way, Gospel living is not about finding an easy way out. It's about learning to see hope and possibilities even in the darkest moments of our lives. Paul in his prison cell looked beyond those dank walls to encourage and teach young communities of faith. Nobody's exempt from those moments of feeling locked up, those moments of feeling that the walls are about to cave in around us. When those prison moments come, we are invited to model for others what it means to face them with hope. There's a single-minded suffering story about a prestigious contemporary poet named Chris Wyman. Though raised a Baptist in Texas, he admits that his faith, quote-unquote, evaporated in the blast of modernism and secularism to which I was exposed in college. But then on his 39th birthday, he started a journey back, back to belief. But this was following his diagnosis as having an incurable blood cancer. He's written these words about that experience. I've had bones die and bowels fail, 
joints lock in my face and arms and legs so that I could not eat, could not walk. I have passed through pain I could not ever have imagined, pain that seemed to incinerate all my thoughts of God and to leave me sitting there in the ashes alone. But for Chris Wyman, that terrible prison cell was where he realized he didn't want answers so much as he needed a person. And the person he felt most understood and was present for him was the friend who'd suffered so greatly on the cross. This poet's name, after all, is Chris, as in Christian. He now bears witness in this way, saying, The point is that God is with us, not beyond us in suffering. I'm a Christian because I understand that moment of Christ's passion to have meaning in my own life. And what it means is that the absolute, solitary, and singular nature of extreme human pain is an illusion. It's not suggesting that ministering angels are going to come down and comfort you as you die. I'm suggesting that Christ's suffering shatters the iron walls around individual human suffering. I mean, no wonder his book of short essays on this whole experience is poignantly titled, My Bright Abyss. And if you'd like to read and discuss this book with me, please reach out. So let me conclude with these words. How have you been blessed to model this in your life? To have to share hope in Christ when you didn't believe it could be possibly there? This week, be sure to share your stories and listen to those of others. By doing so, we will all become even more single-mindedly alive in Christ, despite our various sufferings. Amen.